Faith Matters Publishing presents All Things New Rethinking Sin, Salvation, and Everything in Between by Fiona and Terrell Givens. This unabridged presentation is read for you by Fiona Givens. William Tyndale wrote, Evangelion, what we call the Gospel, is a Greek word and signifieth good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that maketh a man's heart glad and maketh him to sing, dance, and leap for joy. Introduction If God weeps over our misery, why does Christ need to allay God's wrath? If we are in a state of awful woundedness, as the angel tells Nephi, why do we call Christ our Saviour rather than our healer? If we are counselled, never shut the doors of your hearts to your children, why do we fear that our Father will shut his? If Christ came not to condemn the world, why do we fear judgment? If Christ promises to wipe away all tears, Why do we anticipate untold sorrows to come? If we are promised everything that we are willing to receive, why are we filled with anxiety? We are told not to fear, but we do. We are urged to rejoice, but we cannot. Something is wrong with this picture. Brigham Young said, To profess to be a saint and not enjoy the spirit of it tries every fibre of the heart and is one of the most painful experiences that man can suffer. Even as we partake of the plan of happiness, the joy we should feel is impeded as we continue along our fraught journey of life. Depression, poverty, trauma and illness, in ourselves and in those we love, are crosses many bear. But one cross is needless, and it is borne by all too many of us. And that one is the subject of this book. A young woman wrote to us sharing her challenges as a missionary, wandering in moments of despair. Why do I worship this God? I couldn't sleep. Night after night I would lay in bed thinking about an angry, retributive God. We have heard these and similar sentiments expressed with great frequency. One of them wrote, I will wake up an hour or two before my alarm, only to have my mind flooded with thoughts of failings, sins, not fulfilling or magnifying a calling. From a grieving parent. While waiting in the temple recently, I came to a scripture about the damnation of those who fall from their covenants. I felt conflicted torment. What I read felt without hope. I begged God to understand. A man still hurting from childhood wounds described the belief that led him out of the church. It had always been a faith in an angry old man in the sky. The God I was raised to believe in was not kind or loving or merciful. Indeed, he was judgmental. From another member, I let express more heartache. Over and over again, the connotations of the traditional language of the gospel made me ache with fear and bitterness. Yet another recently wrote us about her journey toward healing. Much of the depression I have experienced for years, 
she said with new self-understanding, is because of Calvinist-type ideas that are in the Latter-day Saint culture. One student confessed, I was the kind of child who heard, I am a child of God, and instead of taking to heart the message of divine love, trembled at the second verse. Help me to understand his words before it grows too late. And another student described how my understanding of the nature of God has evolved, but as I've reflected on this, I've come to realize it isn't that I've learned new things about God, rather that I have unlearned things about God, unhealthy, incorrect, culturally informed principles about God, which have, in fact, distanced me from God. One question that came our way lingers with us still. I often worry about how to navigate this fear with my future children in a culture where fear is, in a way, a starting point for obedience. What comes more naturally to a child, love or fear? Is it possible to teach your children to love you without them learning to fear you as a byproduct? Do these principles extend to our heavenly parents as well? We believe that these and so many others struggling saints are suffering as a consequence of what Scripture calls the traditions of the fathers, which are not correct. In 1 Nephi 13, the Lord's Messenger characterizes the modern world's inhabitants as being in an awful state of woundedness, 1830 edition, or in an awful state of blindness, 1837 edition. And the specific explicit reason given is the loss of the gospel's plain and precious things. To what plain and precious things could the messenger be referring? Christians of past and present have believed in the Incarnation, the Atonement, and the Resurrection. If these are the most essential truths, and they are, then how can Christians of the past and saints of the present be adrift in woundedness, blindness? The philosopher Friedrich Schleiermacher describes the situation well. He wrote that one can believe and teach that everything is related to the redemption accomplished by Jesus of Nazareth, and yet that redemption can be interpreted in such a way that it is reduced in coherence. His diagnosis is the subject of this book. In some ways, we are still living and believing according to paradigms of the past. Describing the aftermath of those 16th century revolutions in Christian thought launched by Luther and Calvin, a preeminent historian of religion writes, The Reformation, particularly in its English Protestant form, has created the ideology dominant in the world's one remaining superpower, and Reformation and Counter-Reformation ways of thought remain, often alarmingly alive and central in American culture. For a Latter-day Saint, these survivals should be especially alarming, since we believe we have moved beyond them. Sadly, some have not. These ways of thought are part of an inheritance so vast, so ingrained, so pervasive, that they reveal themselves in almost every thought, colour every relationship, and can contaminate every religious conviction. Behold 
I make all things new, proclaimed the Lord. But many of us have missed the proclamation. We are still mired in the past in ways we have not recognised. The Doctrine and Covenants reinforces this continuing threat in the most alarming language. Joseph Smith referred to a damning hand that riveted the creeds of the fathers who have inherited lies upon the hearts of the children and filled the world with confusion. That confusion, he continued, is now the very mainspring of all corruption, and the whole earth groans under the weight. What can this mean, this reference to the creeds of the fathers that are riveted upon our hearts, filling us with confusion like an iron yoke? To examine the inherited traditions that weigh us down and impede our joy in this world and our happiness in this church is to provoke a more general topic. How are saints to understand our relationship to other churches and to the Christian past in general? Our very identity as a people is inextricably connected with that Christian world against which we have defined ourselves and in light of which we stake our very claim to be members of a restored church. To distill the pure essence of the gospel from the cultural trappings in which it can at times persist is a complex challenge for all of us. A better grasp of the Christian past can help us. So can familiarity with important theological developments. The place to begin would be with the foundations of the original Christianity, which the saints claim has been restored. We may believe in the same church that existed anciently, but presumably the heart of the Restoration is more than offices and programs. What is the original core, the original meaning, of Christ's incarnation and teachings? What, in other words, was lost? And what most needed to be restored by Joseph Smith? Before the Restoration, faith in Jesus Christ was widespread. The Word of God was in general circulation. Good Christians sought to love and serve their neighbours. What, then, was irretrievably broken? How, to put it in Schleiermacher's words, was the original story reduced to incoherence? Only when we answer those questions can we move on to recognise how our own vocabulary at times shares that incoherence. Chapter 1 offers a brief overview of what we might consider to be the essential nucleus of the original Christian message and the community that resulted. We will discuss two doctrines that were part of Christian self-understanding in the early years, the eternal nature of our souls, extending back beyond the formations of the world, and the parenthood of God taken as more than mere metaphor. These two sacred truths, the eternal nature of men and women, and the loving, selfless, devoted love of a parental God was the lifeblood of a vibrant Christian community that saw the purpose of life as an educative experience in the school of love. Chapter 2 consists of an extended foray into Christian history. Those without particular interest in historical details may wish to pass over this section. However, we would invoke the wisdom of James Baldwin, who, in another context, referred to innocent people trapped in a history 
which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. We believe that we cannot fully appreciate the destructive aspects of our inherited vocabulary unless we understand the sources of those cataclysmic and catastrophic changes that erased the doctrine of premortal life and reconfigured the nature of God. We focus our discussion on the two most formative moments of the Christian past, the late 4th century, dominated by the figure of Augustine, and the 16th century, which give rise to the creed so influential in Joseph Smith's day. Many beautiful and God-touched voices persisted through the centuries, and the motives of the religious figures who reconstructed the original gospel plan in new and detrimental ways were doubtless sincere and well-intentioned. Our purpose in rehearsing these developments is only in the interest of an improved understanding of how much further the Restoration must yet unfold to come fully out of the wilderness. In Chapter 3, we treat briefly those resources that both inform the work of Restoration and set its parameters, Scripture and Revelation. And like the other crucial vocabulary this book re-examines, Scripture and Revelation are also words that we might, with profit, reconsider. With these preparatory chapters establishing the groundwork, the chapters that follow constitute the bulk and primary object of our study. Our suggestions for how, in the light of Restoration understanding, we might move ahead the project of constituting a religious vocabulary more fitting to a dispensation in which all things are new.